Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk football and leadership with Ted Sunquist, who, by the way, was the general manager of the Denver Broncos. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan. Today, I have Ted Sunquist. Uh, he's the founder and president of Sports VTS. But get this. This guy was the general manager of the Denver Broncos uh, from 2002 to 2008. He's done a lot of other things. Uh, Ted and I have been pals for quite a while. I've learned a lot from him every single time we've spoken. He's introduced me to some amazing people. And uh, I am just so honored and and thrilled to have you on, on the show. Ted Sunquist. welcome to The Indispensables. Uh, Bruce, I can't thank you enough. And the opportunity is genuinely um, something that I have been looking forward to for the last couple of weeks when you first gave me uh, this idea of, hey, would you like to come on? So I can't tell you uh, what an honor it is for me to be a part of the Indispensables today. So uh, you have a storied career. Uh, you, you've done so many things. You served in, in, in the United States Air Force and, and you've had a whole career in, in football. But tell us, tell us your story in a nutshell. How did you get to where you are? When I look at myself and, and reflect on, you know, I'll turn 60 next year and there's a lot of reflection going on at the moment. You know, I look back and, and a lot of it has to do with where I was brought up. I'm a Houston, Texas native. I had a strong mother influence. My mother was a, was one that had a big part of our upbringing and she, she looked at us and, and I don't want to say demanded high achievement, but she wanted us to get out there and do our very best. And so I was involved in a number of different things growing up all through elementary school and into junior high and high school. You know, I was a boy scout. I was a, an acolyte at the church. I was uh, in Sports, all sports, basketball, football, baseball. Uh, I was involved in a number of different things um, at each level of education, whether it was student government or math club or, I mean, you name it. I I was involved in all those things and I loved it. I, I loved being around people. I loved working with my, my peers and the folks that I grew up with. And we literally grew up together from elementary school. We walked about 100 yards across a field to our junior high and then another 100 yards three years later across to our high school. So these are folks that I had known since I was you know, five or six years old. And again, was able to experience a lot of growth opportunities with them. And, and as a result of that, I had an outstanding opportunity to go to the United States Air Force Academy. My grades were good enough through school uh, to be considered for there. But, but, but certainly it started with my love for football. And I was recruited as an athlete out of a very rich area down in Houston, Texas, where football and athletics was part of the culture to be quite honest with you. Like like Friday Night Lights, right? Just just like Friday Night Lights. In fact, I love that movie. I, I love everything about it and the story that they were telling. And you know, the funny thing is that, you know, it, I, I mentioned turning 60. There are certain plays and certain points 
of those two years as a varsity letterman that I still remember to this day. I've posted on Facebook a play that helped beat our uh, biggest rival, Spring Branch High School, where I caught a pass. The only pass I've ever caught in a varsity game at any level in my entire life to set up the winning field goal. And then the following year, I posted a picture, a a, a video of a quarterback breaking about 15 tackles against us (laughs) and running about 75 yards for the winning touchdown that kept us from going to the state playoffs. And Bruce, those are moments that are just seared into my brain right now. (laughs) I mean, all this time later. And it carried me on. I mean, it, it really did. That, that sense of competition and accomplishment carried me on to the Air Force Academy. And I had such a fantastic opportunity there. The program uh, in general had really sunk to an all-time low. And they were trying to find a way to turn Air Force Academy football around. And I immediately was a part of it. I started as a freshman and we won two football games. And by the time I was done, we went 10-2. and two. We were ranked 13th in the country. We had beaten Notre Dame in back-to-back years. My senior year, we beat them in South Bend. We won the Commander-in-Chief's Trophy two years in a row, beating Army and Navy. And we won uh, consecutive bowl games. We beat SEC opponents. Vanderbilt, uh, my junior year, and then went on and beat Ole Miss my senior year. And so I, I literally was part of a of a turnaround uh, program where a coach came in, a, a coach Ken Hatfield, who later went on and coached Arkansas and Clemson, as well as Rice University. But he came in with an idea and, and a mission and set a culture. And I was a part of that from the very beginning. And I saw the result of that. And that had an immense impact on me as a young person, then heading out into an Air Force career and then later working in the NFL. Yeah. And you were you were a four year letterman in football at the Air Force Academy, right? Yeah, I was. And again, I think part of it was I came from that rich football environment down in Houston, Texas. We ran a very similar offensive scheme. I had the opportunity as a freshman with a new offense that was being run, the wishbone. And we were uh, installing the wishbone. And what I did in high school was very similar to what I was being asked to do in college. It kind of fit like hand and glove. And I think that the coaches were looking for some young players to begin to build the program around. And I just, I got a great opportunity to do that. And along the way, accomplished some really cool things. And, and and also had some downs. I I tore my ACL as a sophomore and missed the majority of that season and was asked to come back with the whole physical rehab part and the mental aspect of, hey, will I ever get back to where I was at? My role on the team kind of changed. That was more uh, now sharing time uh, with another player who was a very close friend of mine. And again, you know, my role changed and I kind of grew with that role, but I would not trade my four years at the Air Force Academy both athletically as well as a cadet and uh, the uh, academic portion for anything. I think I picked and I think God led me to the absolute perfect place. And, 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 and you ended up as a coach. Was that your senior year when you were coaching as an assistant coach? Uh, actually, it was. Uh, I had just been commissioned as a second lieutenant, and so it was my first year on active duty. And I, I believe nowadays they call them graduate assistants, GAs. They did back then as well. Uh, but we were actually second lieutenants, and our very first job in the Air Force was as um, – well, coaches, but they called it something else, I think, at that particular point in time. And it gave me an opportunity, I think, to immediately give back to a program that had meant so much to me. It was a one-year job. 
And then after that, I went on and was trained um, as a signals intelligence officer and then went into my uh, my regular career path in the Air Force shortly thereafter. Yes. Yeah, so so uh, but I love that that uh, uh, so you you stuck around the, the academy um, and you got to uh, be an assistant coach. And so you were all you, you were a brand new Air Force officer coaching the team you had played on. Yeah, exactly. And Ken Hatfield, who had been our head coach because of the success that we had, was given the opportunity himself to go back to the University of Arkansas, where he had been an All-American. Fisher DeBerry, who was my position coach at the time when I was a player, was elevated to head coach. And so to stay back and be on the first staff of Fisher DeBerry, who had been the guy who had the biggest influence on me over the course of those four years as a player, as well as a cadet, was truly an honor. I mean, I was so excited. It was the continuation of a program that had been built in 1980 and that we were continuing in 1984. And yet it was a restart. There was brand new coaches coming in. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, hey, can, can Coach DeBerry keep the success going that Coach Hatfield had done? What's going to happen to the Falcons? And I think a lot of that continuity that a number of us that stayed back to coach as second lieutenants, a lot of that continuity and stabilization was built upon, you know, our very presence. We knew you know, what was important, what Coach Hatfield had stressed. We knew that Coach DeBerry wanted to do the exact same thing. And we were able to, you know, quickly insert ourselves as young lieutenants and to be role models for those cadets that were coming up that were kind of like, ah, are we going to keep winning under Coach DeBerry or is this it? Coach Hatfield's left. And we were like, hey, we're going to keep it going, fellas. Just follow us. And, and of course, uh, as you said, you were always that guy, right? You were the Boy Scout. You were a leader in your church. You ended up being your high school class president. So you were always that guy. But, but, but you must have become more that guy as a result of your training at the Air Force Academy, as a result of your being on that team and, and learning from that coach. And, 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 and then all this, and then here you are getting to start being a leader of this important team at, at such a young age. What was that like? You know what, Bruce, you know, I look back on it and again, this whole reflective period as you're approaching 60, you know, in my early years, I, I think growing up, I was always a competitive guy, but I was, I was competitive inwardly, you know, from a self perspective. I, I, I wanted to run the fastest because I, I wanted to cross that finish line first. It was how fast can I push myself? I wanted, you know, the most merit badges, not because I wanted to beat any individual on the number, but just I wanted to see how far I could push myself. And, and so there was a lot of early on in the life process of growing and learning, learning to push myself to the very best that I could be. And then you reach a point where you're like, look, you can only take yourself so far by yourself. But when combined with a lot of people like yourself that really strive to be the very best they can be, the sky is the absolute limit. I mean, you you can take a, a football program that's that on average had won about two games for the better part of a decade and in four years win 10 games and be ranked 13th in the country. You can pursue a career 
field that you thought you were going down, which I really wanted to be a veterinarian, believe it or not. My, I was set on becoming a veterinarian. And somewhere in the recruiting process, the Air Force said, oh, yeah, you can be a veterinarian if you come to the academy. <laughs> I quickly found out that the only vets that served in the military were in the Army. And so I I, I had to readjust. I mean, I, I literally had to shift gears and go, okay, now what do I want to do? And I had a family background and roots that went all the way back to Russia. There was an interest in Russian history in the Soviet Union at that particular point in time. Certainly the Cold War was at its height. And, and there was just a tremendous interest there. And, and, and so I, I realized, hey, I can shift gears. I, I, I had the wherewithal academically to kind of pull myself away from science and go down this his, history political science route. Yeah, and you, you were just, uh, uh, of course, uh, for those who don't understand the Air Force Academy, you were learning how to be an airman uh, or an Air Force officer. Uh, you, 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 were, you were playing football and then helping lead the football team. But the whole time, you were also doing your academic studies. And in your case, you're, you were studying Soviet area studies, right? Correct. Taking Soviet history, Soviet government, uh, the Russian language, you name it. And at the same time, we all graduate with a bachelor's of science. So, so we had to take engineering classes, electrical engineering, physics, mechanical engineering, aeronautical engineering. I mean, all of us took those courses from a kind of a 60,000 foot level. And then you begin to specialize as you look towards your career path in the Air Force. And that's that's when Soviet area studies took over for me. Yeah, and of course, uh, uh, that was during uh, uh, the, the years when President Reagan uh, was systematically uh, uh, helping the Soviet Union come to an end. And <laughs> yeah. God, God, God bless you for helping keep America strong and the world safe during those yeah, years. Yeah, I, I, I tell you what, it was a fantastic time to be part of the military because certainly there was a, a revamping of and a rebuilding of and a resurgence of pride in our military, as well as uh, giving us the opportunity to go out and do our job. Yeah. And then and then uh, just, you know, so so I, I forget if you were an Eagle Scout before you you went to the Air Force Academy, but I'm guessing you were. I was. Yes, yeah, of course. And, uh, <laughs> I always say to people, you know, hey, if you if you want to guarantee, you know, this guy you bring on your team, Go find yourself an Eagle Scout. I often uh, will say, you know, find somebody who, who who was a leader in school government. And I also often say, you know, find yourself somebody who served as, as a leader on a good sports team. And I often say, find yourself, find yourself a good Air Force intelligence officer. So then you went on to be a signals uh, intelligence officer serving in uh, in Germany, right? I did. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be stationed in Berlin, Germany, when the wall was still up. And I say fortunate enough because I think it it really brought everything into perspective of what was going on at that particular point in time. I mean, Berlin as a city was deep inside of East Germany, a communist bloc country, and we were surrounded by a wall. And it was very, very easy to see uh, the dichotomy of the two philosophies by living in West Berlin, and then at times taking leave and going into East Berlin as one of the occupying forces, we had the ability to travel into East Berlin. And immediately, as soon as you crossed a line, a visible line, the difference 
in how the people lived and, and the people's attitude, the look on their faces. I mean, it seemed like at times it was always cloudy over East Berlin and the sun was shining over West Berlin. Well, if if, if, if not in reality, metaphorically, right? And somewhere, somewhere in there in East Berlin was that rascal Vladimir Putin as a young KGB officer. Yeah, you're exactly right. And there were a lot of things that were going on at that time that melded the thoughts and the philosophies and the overall, I guess, perspective of all of us. And again, I I, I couldn't have been more uh, fortunate. And, I, and a quick story on that, too. President Reagan had come to the Air Force Academy in 1984, and he actually commissioned all of us and gave us our diplomas. And I shook the president's hand. And one of my one of my prized possessions actually here in my office is a picture of myself and President Reagan, and I'm in parade uniform and shaking his hand. Well, so now I'm in Berlin, Germany, just two or three years later, and President Reagan is coming to Berlin. And I'm like, I got the day off. I'm going to jump on my bicycle and I'm going to ride down. And so I, I get down there early because I figured there's going to be a fairly big crowd. And I'm literally about 10 rows back of this jam-packed mass of humanity right at the Berlin Wall. I have my bicycle and I got my 35 millimeter camera and I'm focusing in and this is back before digital folks. So you actually had to, uh, you had to have your film, uh, <laughs> take your film in and have it developed. But President Reagan happens to say this uh, line that resonates, I think even today, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And I was there, 10 rows back. And I have a picture, I have a picture that's iconic to me of President Reagan up there on the podium. There's a blue background with a plexiglass uh, backdrop as well that could see through to East Berlin. It's an iconic moment in history, and I got an opportunity to be there as a result of having been stationed over in Berlin. Well, well, well you, you and I have in common that as young men, we, we, we shook that man's hand. So Fantastic. Um, I, 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 I was working in the House of Representatives in 83 and 84 as a page. Um, and um, uh, that school year, so I'm a little younger than you, but uh, I was 16. Uh, but uh, January 24th, 1984, uh, I did reach out and shake that man's hand as he went down to give the State of the Union address. And, 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 and I was a Democratic House page, but, uh, you know, we, we get one commander in chief at a time. When I talk with somebody like you and I think uh, you actually served, you actually were there doing signals intelligence in Berlin uh, when the Soviet Union was still the scariest threat there was. Yeah, no doubt. And, and, the, and the mission that we had ultimately was to was to have the back of our uh, of our pilots who were doing missions up and down the Baltic Sea back then when that's what they did. And certainly you wanted to make sure that that they were able to freely fly in zones that they were allowed to fly in and that there weren't any, you know, dangerous situations that were uh, created as a result of, let's say, you know, Czechoslovakian fighter jets scrambling to go up and just mess with them. And so we were their eyes and ears. And uh, and I took that job very seriously. And a lot of folks that I worked with did. And, and what's amazing is, is we were all in our early 20s tasked with this great you know, responsibility of, uh, you know, one, maintaining our presence in the in Berlin, but at the same time, you know, protecting our folks that were out there protecting us. Well, it's amazing. And it's one of the things you and I have talked about many times over the years that, 
you know, do young people today are so, you know, they, they get such a bad rap. And is it the case that what they need is weak leadership? And I think the United States Armed Forces stands as a long test of time that what young people thrive under is strong leadership, not weak leadership. You're exactly right. And again, I was fortunate um, on a number of, ca- of occasions in the military to have strong leadership, uh, both at the Air Force Academy, at the squadron level, and then later on uh, as an athlete, the Colonel Clune, uh, who had been uh, John Clune, who had been a Naval Academy graduate and come back as athletic director at the Air Force Academy, set such a fantastic example for all of us in the way that he went about running athletics, but also in his support of the football program and his belief in all of us as young athletes and cadets that we could get that thing turned around. And and meanwhile, during all this, this guy, you were on the USA bobsled team and went to the Olympic trials, right? <laughs> I was. So again, talking about being in the right place at the right time. So I, I my football career ends and I'm 22 years old and I had, I'd spent all that time trying to rehab my knee and get back to full strength. And, and I still felt like, hey, you know, I got a little bit of athleticism left. I, I'm tired of getting hit and tackled all the time. But uh, there's got to be something out there that I could get involved with really quickly that would allow me to, you know, push myself as I've always pushed myself. I wanted to play Division One college football against the very best. I went and did that and we played Notre Dame and beat them and played BYU at the that time it was Steve Young and and uh, you know the Hall of Fame quarterback for the 49ers and we beat them and you know and beat Army and Navy and they, I I guess I felt like I still had a little bit left to prove bobsledding. <laughs> well, here the funny thing is, Bruce, it came down to two things. I was like, all right, I got to find something that I haven't been training in since I was like eight years old, like professional tennis or <laughs> or, or any anything else like that. There's got to be something for a guy that can just run really, really strong and fast, straightforward, or that can pull as hard as he can uh, backwards, let's say. So it came down to rowing and bobsled. We called the Bobsled Federation, and the director of the Bobsled Federation was a chief master sergeant in the Air Force. Gotta, gotta love an NCO. I'm telling you. And he said, absolutely, we'd love to have you. Come on up. So my buddy and I went on a, uh, went on about a five hop flight. And for those of you that don't know hops, you know, your military, you can show up at an Air Force base. If they have an empty seat, you can jump on a plane. And we flew from Colorado Springs and went down towards Georgia and then up the East Coast and finally got to Lake Placid. And I flew on a General's Learjet and a C-130 with web seats. You know, I mean, we went the gambit of, uh, <laughs> of uh, uh, flight options there. And we finally got there and it was the last race of the season and all these athletes are there and they're like, what the heck are you guys doing? Who are you guys? And there was one, there was one bobsled driver that needed a push team and we're like, we'll do it. Well, we knew why he needed a push team. He was probably about 50 pounds overweight and just no athleticism to him at all but literally the best driver in the whole sport at that particular point in time. And so we jumped on, we pushed him, we fell in love with the sport. Uh, the next year we, we got teamed up with a more serious driver uh, who had played uh, college athletics himself. He was a veterinarian of all things up in Lake Placid, New York. So I like that about him as well. And we got my brother uh, in. So there was my brother, myself, and then my good friend from the academy. And we just, we continued to race. 
and uh, made it all the way to the Olympic trials in a unforeseen and untimely crash right before the end, kind of injured the driver and beat me up a little bit as well. And we dropped from third to fifth and just didn't have enough uh, points left to, uh, to make the Olympic team, but came very close. Yeah, and I mean, just pretty amazing since you had just picked up the bobsled uh, team uh, as, as, as an afterthought, and you were on that team for four years? Yeah, not a lot of Texans uh, on, on the bobsled team. <laughs> I, I, I got a real funny, real funny story real quick with that as well. So, so it was one of the years that uh, the Jamaicans, as you've heard of Cool Runnings and the whole movie uh, of the Jamaican bobsled team, and actually, I was there when the Jamaicans first showed up, and they had never seen ice, and they all got down on their hands and knees and were touching and kind of looking at the ice and, and just were mesmerized by ice. Not, not, not the fact that they were getting ready to go down the, the track at, you know, 90 miles an hour, but just that there was ice that was, you know, covered an entire mountainside. And these guys actually, the true story is they were all um, Jamaican military and the driver was a helicopter pilot in their Air Force. So kind of cool story. That's that's amazing. And um, so we're going to take a break in a minute. But um, and because I really want to talk about your experience with the Denver Broncos and what you've been doing since then. Uh, but 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 let's say um, you got promoted a couple times. You were a captain in, in the Air Force and were assistant football coach uh, for the team. Then you went on to be the head football coach uh, at the at the Air Force prep. Uh, is that right? Yep, that's correct. And, and, and did, did you leave the Air Force as a captain? I did. What ended up happening was, is my time at the Air Force Academy had run out. I had spent a little bit too much time from a career path at the Air Force Academy coaching football. And as I was getting ready to go back into uh, regular service, the Soviet Union dissolved. Uh, Air Force was trying to downsize at that particular point in time. And I was told, hey, your chances of getting promoted you know, as you continue on, have really been hurt by by you staying and coaching football as long as you did when I went back to the academy. And I was single at the time and made the decision, okay, well, you know what, um, onward and upward with my coaching career. And I left the academy and that's where the next part kind of picks up. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, uh, we're going to take a little break. Um, uh, we're, we, we've been having a great conversation uh, here with Ted Sunquist. So we'll, 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 we'll be back in a minute. Are you a leader of your organization looking for straightforward, data-driven business guidance? Then look no further than the Conference Board's new podcast series, CEO Perspectives. The Conference Board is a business think tank that provides trusted insights for what's ahead to the world's leading companies. Each episode features a 30-minute conversation by some of the Conference Board's noted subject matter experts, discussing a range of relevant business issues critical to CEOs right now such as the return to workplace, infrastructure spending, and where U.S.-China relations are headed, among other timely topics. You can find our new podcast series on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We invite you to listen and subscribe to CEO Perspectives, brought to you by the Conference Board. So, uh, all right, we're back with Ted Sunquist, founder and president of Sports VTS, and uh, who was general manager of the Denver Broncos from 2002 to 2008. But it's okay, so you leave the United States Air Force, and how do you hook up with the Denver Broncos? 
It's the funniest thing because uh, it seems like every story that I have has a story behind it. <laughs> and this one, this one has a story behind it as well. So again, I'm single at the time. All I have to do is worry about myself. And I'm like, all right, I, I, I've loved coaching. I had the opportunity to go back to the academy and coach after my years in Berlin. I loved every second of it. And I thought coaching is the profession that I want to pursue. But I got out of the Air Force in the summer of 1992. And the summertime is not the time to be looking for a, a coaching job at any level, college, high school, Pop Warner. I mean, those coaching jobs are usually filled by that time. So I'm kind of scratching my head wondering, what do I do to fill, you know, to fill in the time between now and then the next year? And one of our coaches at the Air Force Academy said, hey, you ought to give the Denver Broncos a call and just see if there's something that you can do, you know, for those guys. Just, just, you know, see what you can do. So not being shy, I gave him a call and said, hey, you know, uh, I'd, I'd love to come up and just get some career advice. And I was at, at that particular point in time talking to the then general manager of the Broncos, a, a, a man by the name of John Beek. And so John said, well, sure, Ted, come on up. I, I'd be happy to talk to you. So I, I drove up from Colorado Springs to Denver and I, and I spoke with John and I told him a little bit of my background and what I was wanting to do. And at that particular point in time, John said, well, you know, Ted, I, I, I mean, I really appreciate your enthusiasm and, you know, everything that you've accomplished. And, and But really here at the Broncos, we just don't have anything for you right now. I mean, this is... You know, we're getting ready to start the season. Uh, training camp is uh, not too far away, but certainly I'll keep you in mind. And you know, but good luck to you. Kind of patted me on the head and said, "Well, you know, <laughs> don't call us; we'll call you." Type of deal. So uh, you know, I, I drive back down to Colorado Springs, and I'm like, "All right, what's Plan B?" Well, about two weeks later, I get a phone call from John, and John's like, "You know, Ted, I've been thinking about it, and I got this idea." And I said, "Okay," and he goes. The team is getting ready to go play a, a preseason game in Berlin, Germany, and, and it's the American Bowl. And I'm listening to him. I'm like, Berlin, Germany, American Bowl, football. I know what. He wants me to go with the team over there, maybe like, you know, like, like a, a, a tour guide or something, you know? And I'm like, so I'm waiting for him to, you know, get to his point. And he goes, and anyway, we're going to take the entire organization over as a kind of a gesture to how much we appreciate them and, and to get them ready for the coming season. Season. And I'm like, yeah, John, I, I'd be happy to go with you. And he goes, well, no, 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 that's not quite what I had in mind. He said, since everybody's going to be gone, we need somebody to stay around and watch the facility while we're gone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, he, and I went, okay, why not? <laughs> and so, yeah, well, what, what, what an irony, right? Because you actually knew your way around Berlin. Exactly. So I drove I drove up and back from Colorado Springs to Denver for about a week. I'd open the I'd open the doors of the facility and I'd go in, I'd sit down, I basically played security guard. I I picked up the mail, walked around, made sure the place, you know, was uh, still standing and and when he came back, John said, uh, you know what? The place didn't burn down, so I guess we'll find something for you to do. I, I've got a position in operations for, that I'll offer you six bucks an hour. And I'm like, I'll take it. And so I drove back and forth from Colorado Springs up to Denver for six bucks an hour in 1992. And the operations job that I was doing was basically giving tours of the facility and going and picking people up at the airport. And, 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 and what an amazing thing, because uh, we'll hear how this happened. But for people who are listening, OK, and of course, you're you're not the average bear. You're not the average Bronco. 
right? That, that, uh, you know, put you, get, get your, get your foot in the door. We know you're going places, but 10 years later, you're the general manager. Yeah. You know, the, the opportunity, uh, you, that's what you just want, right? Exactly. You want the opportunity. And when I was given that opportunity, then things began to fall in place. One of the guys back in the scouting department was a former World War II reconnaissance pilot. His name was Jerry Fry. He had played on the Wisconsin Badgers national championships teams after he came back from World War II. And the other guy that kind of took me under his wing was a guy named Jack Elway, whose son, I think, could play some football pretty well. Jack was John's dad. And those two guys, you know, once I got an opportunity to really kind of get my feet on the ground with the Broncos organization, they asked me, hey, you know, we can tell that you're, you know, you're a football guy. Would you like to go back into scouting? And I said, absolutely. Uh, and those two uh, gentlemen were in their 70s at the time, and, and they just took a liking to me. And they taught me football from a different perspective than I'd ever looked at it before. And that was, you know, player personnel, talent evaluation, going and finding free agents, draft choices, all, all that stuff. And, and, I, and I really, I had, a, I, I had an affinity for it. I, I really liked that part of the game and, and was surprised by that a little bit. And my career path ended up going down that direction. Uh, we had some tremendous success my first couple of years there. I, I was promoted to director of college scouting under Mike Shanahan. So I was the youngest director of college scouting at that particular point in time. And then just three or four years later, we won back-to-back Super Bowls. Yes, yeah, so, 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 so your college scouting must have been very successful. A little bit. Yeah, we found a guy named Terrell Davis who also has a gold jacket now in, in uh, Canton, Ohio. That was good. Shannon Sharp. Oh, golly, Sam. Rod Smith. Ed McCaffrey, whose son is Christian McCaffrey that plays for the Carolina Panthers. Uh, just a lot of, uh, around a lot of great players and some great coaches and really saw how it was supposed to be done. We had a fantastic owner in Pat Bolin who had a lot of faith and, and uh, trust in myself and um so I just, I learned the business, I think, at that particular point in time from, from one of the best organizations in the league. I mean, arguably the Green Bay Packers uh, were at their height as well. Uh, Denver was at its height. Uh, New England was just beginning to become the team that they would later become. So there were, you know, there were a lot of great examples to, to follow there. But I mentioned New England, and as you, you know, as, as, as NFL fans look around the league now, I think everybody wants a part of the Bill Belichick tree. Well, that was going on in Denver as well. And I had the opportunity to go and interview for the Chicago Bears general manager's job in 2001. And I finished a close second behind uh, a guy that I had known in scouting for a number of years that was much older than I was. And I later found out that the league had encouraged the Bears to go with the guy who had kind of paid his dues. But that put me in a great position the following year when Arthur Blank, the founder of Home Depot and now the owner of the Atlanta Falcons, he was looking for a new general manager. And he reached out to Mr. Boland and said, hey, I'd like to interview Ted because I understand that he came really close to becoming the Bears GM. And that's when Pat came into my office and said, hey, you and I aren't leaving the building until I have an agreement with you to be my general manager. And so I was promoted in in 2002 to GM of the Denver Broncos. So you're 40 years old and you become the general manager of the Denver Broncos, right? And you did that for six years. Uh, What was that like? Uh, Very exciting, a lot of responsibility, but I felt like I was ready for it. And I think I was ready for it because of the opportunities and the people that I had met and 
uh, the, you know, the pressure circumstances and whatnot of being a cadet and being a football player at Air Force and later being a, a lieutenant in Berlin, Germany and coming back and coaching and being a head coach uh, at the Air Force Academy Prep School. And then, you know, being given that opportunity and uh, early on to come on with the Broncos and, you know, stepping out on a ledge and again, changing my career path. There are just a lot of things that had prepared me for that moment, and I and I felt ready for it. We won the fifth most games and spent the 28th mo- uh, most money, which is what you're trying to do. You're trying to win a lot of football games and not spend a lot of your owner's money. Uh, we came on the doorstep of going to the Super Bowl in 2005 and lost in the AFC Championship game to the Pittsburgh Steelers, who then went on and won. I had a fantastic uh, a ride. I had some awesome, awesome young guys that were working for me. I had tremendous support staff, uh, a gal that was, I, I jokingly call my work wife to this day, that was uh, that had been my assistant for the better part of 14 years. When you're a GM of a, of a football team, just for, for people who don't know what that kind of organization looks like, what's your staff look like? Like how many people serve that team? Oh God, at that particular point in time, I was probably overseeing directly overseeing about 30 or 40 folks, you know? I mean, you know, an organization is not uh, real big in the NFL, but, you know, I was responsible for the trainers. I was responsible for all of IT. I was responsible for the video operations. I was responsible for all of the scouting department. I was responsible for the operations department, which actually gets the team from point A to point B. I was responsible for the equipment managers and, you know, and then ultimately um, set on a number of committees that represented the uh the denver broncos in the in the national football league and then so, so you have like a, a team of of 40 professionals who are making this uh sort of this stuff happen and how, how many direct reports would you have in a situation like that there's probably about five or six major departments when you look at it equipment video operations it College scouting, pro scouting, the salary cap, which is a big one. I mean, the, the, the salary cap and how we manage the salary cap and were able to acquire talent without going over the salary cap was probably the biggest job that I had. And I was, I, I look back and I mentioned that we won the fifth most games over that time period, spending the 28th most money. That just says that, hey, we weren't the New York Yankees. And sorry, Yankee fans. I just throw money and, and, and just throw money at their problems and we'll buy this pitcher and we'll buy this guy. I'm an Astros fan, by the way. So, <laughs> Hey, listen, I got, no, I, got, I got no problem with the Astros. I'm a Red Sox fan. I'm not. But, but but we're 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 a split family here at Rainmaker Thinking. We've 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 got a Dodger fan and we've got a wicked Yankees fan. And um uh so but it's it's all in fun as long as the Red as long as the Red Sox are winning. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um so uh uh so so um I know you've written about this uh as a blogger on the footballeducator.com. I know, you know, I love your book, Taking Your Team to the Top, uh, the McGraw Hill book uh that was published in twenty thirteen. And um and you talk about this stuff sometimes on the NFL network and uh, but 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 what was your your philosophy of leadership as a GM? I mean, here you were, you know, you had been trained as a leader in the United States uh, Air Force. 
Uh, you had leadership experience from the time you were in high school. You were your class president. Uh, of course, you know, you're a Boy Scout, all this stuff. You're a football uh, player and a leader of, of, of teams. But, but here you are. I mean, that is a pretty significant leadership position to be uh, uh, the general manager of an NFL team. Uh, and, and I know you've written about it, but how, how would you describe your leadership philosophy? Yeah, no, Bruce, that's a great, that's a great question. And, and one of the things that, that I was fortunate, I think, enough with over the course up leading up to that point was being a part of the military in the Air Force, as well as professional sports. And the mission is kind of built in already. Is That is, you, you win. You know, Air Force's motto is fly, fight, and win. It's built into the motto and and built into job security in the NFL is just win, baby. I mean, Al Davis, <laughs> I mean, he put it about as succinctly as you can possibly put it being a Raider, but uh, just win, baby. It doesn't matter. And, and so everybody knew that ultimately success, the absolute most important thing. But how did we get to that success? And and really, I I, I kind of came up with a little uh, uh, idea as I was writing the book that I, I said, well, you know, I got some foods for thought, so to speak, which was focus, unity, direction, excellence equals success. And what I tried to do, I knew that all the guys and gals that were in the various department of football operations, I knew they were they were extremely talented. I knew they wanted to be winners. We, we had won back-to-back Super Bowls already, so there was already kind of the Bronco way of going about and doing business. But what could I do as general manager to continue to define that Bronco way and to emphasize that Bronco way? And and it started with focus, was keeping everybody focused on how their job fit into the overall machine that was known as the Denver Broncos, the importance of the video department, the importance of, of, of uh, a growing IT industry. Uh, remember, at that particular point in time, computers and the way we use uh, digital information nowadays was was just in its infancy. So it was trying to find new ways to use IT and giving those guys the opportunity to expand their influence over all the departments. It was being leaders, you know, within each one of those uh fields in the NFL. I highly encouraged our guys, hey, get out there and and get on the committees in the NFL that oversee video or oversee scouting or oversee be leaders in your field and get and and, and provide influence from a Denver perspective over the entire industry that is known as the NFL. And then unity. I wanted everybody to understand that hey, we're in this together. And when we win, we win together. And when we lose, we lose together. And if there's problems where we can help each other out, let's go, let's do that. I may not be you know, uh, a regular member of um, the uh, training staff. But if you happen to see something that you feel like could help them as an IT member or as, you know, somebody in scouting, let them know, you know, let them know and be receptive to that information on the other side. They're not criticizing you. They're trying to help you do your job better. So that's like, 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 like early cross-functional collaboration that you were trying to drive. Exactly. Exactly. I, I didn't want everybody to think, well, I'm just going to dig my little hole and I'm going to wallow in this hole and, and not come out of it. And, you know, uh, be damned with the other departments. I, I'm doing my stuff. Um, right, right, you, know, right. so, you know, first and foremost, obviously, is to succeed in your area. But, but, but then again, understand where you fit. 
in, in the overall machine. And I talk about direction and I thought it was direction really kind of comes from, from the communication process, which, you know, communication is vital and to be able to give people an understanding of, Hey, this is what needs to get done. And this is what I'm expecting it to look like now go and do it. I was, I was at that particular point in time, I really kind of let people just grab the reins and go with it themselves. You know, don't tell people what to do or how to do things, tell them what to do and they'll surprise you with their ingenuity. That was a quote that I had learned at the Air Force Academy. And I knew what the Bronco way was and what was expected. I had seen success in the past and I knew how these various departments could fit together to make a successful football operations. And that's what I tried to do was give everybody enough reins in their department to go out and be the very best that they could possibly be from their vision, as long as it fell within the mission of winning games for the Broncos. And then that, you know, I, and then the excellence part, um, F-U-D-E, excellence. Again, that goes back to the very beginning of my mom just wanting me to, if you're going to do something, do it right, and do it your very best, and let's be really good at it. And I had found over the course leading up to that particular point in time, over everything that we've talked about today, that that by and large, will give you an opportunity to, to succeed. So that focus, unity, direction, and excellence would equal success. And, you know, we did that. Like I said, we won a lot of football games, and I'm proud of the job that I did in Denver. And then, you know, all good things come to an end, and, and eventually they did. Uh, and and I still, to this day, to be honest with you, but I loved being a Bronco, and I loved uh, the success and the folks that I, that I met in my days in, in Denver. Focus, unity, direction, and excellence. So uh, I, I, I also want to ask you about your um, – so, so here you are, you, you know, then, then you decided, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll write a book, and, uh, and, it's, and it's a really good book, uh, Taking Your Team to the Top. Uh, I recommend it. And you've done work as a TV football analyst. Uh, but tell us about Sports VTS, uh, this, uh, this, this business uh, you've been running for, for the last five years. Well, it came as a result of an idea that I had while I was in Denver as general manager, Bruce. And it it was basically, you know, here I am tasked with going and finding talented football players. And a lot of times talent, it doesn't matter how good you are. If opportunity doesn't, you know, cross your path, you sometimes just sit there on the sideline watching. And especially at the quarterback position, I saw a lot of young, talented quarterbacks enter into the league, if not the Denver Broncos. And we would talk about developing these guys. We'll draft them and then we'll develop them. And what would happen as the season started, that development kind of went by the wayside and it was, we'll draft them and then they'll sit with a clipboard and watch while John Elway or Jake Plummer, the starter, is out there doing their deal. Invariably, what would happen right whether it's the broncos or whether it was another team is about week 13 the starter would break his leg in the third quarter and the second team backup who's usually a young guy not getting paid very much is scrambling to try to find his helmet and the coaches are trying to figure out which place does this guy know how do we pull back our uh, our game plan and one of two things would always happen one of the, the first ones would be they would go out and they would throw Three touchdowns, they would be just playing off of adrenaline. And the rest of the team would pick themselves up and, and you know, help this guy. And he would make it through the third quarter, into the fourth quarter. The team would win, and everybody would go, hey, this is great. We found our quarterback. And then the, and then the next week would start, and the kid came off the adrenaline, and now he's scared to death. 
The second thing would happen, which is he'd go in, he'd throw three interceptions. The coaching staff would come to me as the personnel director and say, this guy can't play. Get him out of here and find us a quarterback. And you're like, what What do you mean find us a quarterback? It's week 13. So I'm thinking, all right, how do I keep these young players developing and ready at a moment's notice? And I think to my Air Force days, well, what do they do in the Air Force with pilots? Because we have the same problem. There's not a rep- enough repetitions, not enough aircraft. They need time behind the stick. They use these hyper-realistic simulators. It's like you're sitting in the cockpit of an F-22. I mean, it, it, but visually, you're just seeing simulation representation, you know? I mean, animated animated circumstances and scenarios, whether it's refueling or trying to, to land on a deck of an aircraft carrier. So I said, hey... If virtual reality and simulation training works to keep pilots alive in our Air Force, then it's got to work to help a quarterback throw a touchdown pass, right? And and at that particular time when I had the idea, the the, the um, technology just wasn't there. And then kind of flash forward and backwards from now. But about seven years ago, virtual reality as an industry kind of hit the market with the Oculus Rift. A lot of people may you know, know of them. Facebook bought Oculus Rift for, you know, umpteen billion or whatever. And and off went a market that really people didn't know how to utilize. Suddenly we had these visual displays, but it was like, well, how do we, how do we use these? What are they good for? Is it just gaming? Is it, you know, and a friend of mine who actually was my bobsled buddy said, Hey, you should, you should go back and look at that idea that you had, because I think technology's caught up and it's affordable now. And that's exactly what I did, Bruce. And I, I and then I, I, I wrote a white paper of what my vision was and I got connected with a group up out of Seattle, Washington called Launchpad Inc. that helps, you know, young, well, I say young at the time, young, <laughs> young in the business of starting my own business, let's put it that way. Uh, you know, young ideas blossom into patents. And so we sat down and we began to write out the the cornerstones of this patentable idea that I had and and that's where it started about uh, 2013 and I submitted my first uh, patent application and uh, believe it or not it was in March of this year and I finally got it <laughs> it was like a seven seven eight year process but we got the technology patented and uh, I started the company in 2016 you know like like all startups we went through some bumpy roads in the first two years trying to find investment trying to get a, a proof of concept built out um, get a prototype out there then covid hit um, but really here over the last year and a half we've been able to to really begin to take off and I'm excited that's incredible and is that what you worked with Vic Modion yeah, 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 and he 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 was a guest uh, a few episodes back. Just uh, uh, check him out. Um, so so it's amazing. So now you're basically going into a whole new uh, phase with uh, quarterback simulation. Yeah, so I'm taking all uh, you know all of my background and experience within the game of football, both as a coach and a personnel director, and and then you know. Engineering, I, I again, if you remember back to me saying all that engineering, I had to take at the academy. I know just enough to speak the language, but uh, it gets me in trouble when I start trying to make recommendations to the real engineers. So, <laughs> so by and large, I just kind of guide it from the standpoint of, hey, it needs to look like this and react like this from a football perspective. Trying to use my network in the game. 
uh, with the players, with the coaches, with the agents that are out there, you know, certainly uh, having a background with a website, having blogged in the past with the football educator, you know, done some um, network TV type things, you know, that helps me on the uh, social media side in sales and marketing. And the idea is to get Sports VTS uh, to become the the technology of choice, the the, the leading solution for uh, simulation training. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And what I try to tell football coaches is that I'm not I'm not trying to replace you. Uh, and I'm not the, I'm not building the house. I'm providing you with the tools so that you can build the house. And this will just be, you know, instead of using a claw hammer, you now got a jackhammer to, you know, to, to help you. Um, but by and large, you know, the thought process was providing more realistic repetitions without putting the players at risk of injury. And I have had, uh, as a result of my days as a, a old wishbone fullback that we talked about, um, I've had my own issues with, with I think, uh, you know, repeated concussions over over the years of playing football, and they catch up with you eventually. And uh, just, I think there, there are ways to teach the game in a safer manner, in a more efficient manner, in a more effective manner, and um, to make better athletes without putting them at repeated risk, especially when it comes to head injury. Because the game of football, I think, is is basically under attack because of uh, how physical it is. I know I've got a sister who has three boys, and, and she's focused them on more or less less contact sports, you know, baseball, uh, things like that. One of them is playing football, but uh, but at the same time, you know, make it a safer game. Yeah, so be able to practice and uh, practice rigorously, but in a safer manner. Uh, that's that's a pretty cool mission. And uh, it's it's it sounds like that that's going to be keeping you busy for a while now. Yeah, I think so, Bruce. But I, I, I feel like it's my opportunity again at this point, And we talk about reflection that at 60 to give back to the game if I can in some fashion that's given so much to me, you know, starting back in Houston, Texas and Friday night lights and working its way through the air force Academy and the Denver Broncos. And, and now with this opportunity, so we're in a Texas tech, we're in at Oklahoma, we're in at UCLA. Uh, we actually have a fan um, version of this at the college football hall of fame in Atlanta. There are a number of verticals that have kind of grown out of the original idea. So there, there is an opportunity for fans to experience what it's like to stand on the 50 yard line and have a, a defensive line, all six foot five, 300 pounds of them coming down on you and throwing a touchdown pass. Um, without getting hit and having to lift your, lift yourself up off the ground. Yeah. Without getting hit. Well, uh, QB sim, I, I, I think, uh, I think it's going places. Uh, anything you do, uh, seems to go off into the wild blue yonder. So, uh, so I have no, no doubt this will too. Uh, Ted Sunquist, you are a force of nature. Thank you for being a guest on the indispensables. Bruce, thanks again for the opportunity. And uh, I, I, right back at you, buddy. I enjoy your work as well. And you're doing great stuff and getting the word out to folks. So um, it, it was an honor to be on The Indispensables. Well, it's, 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 it's an honor to have you. Thank you. In our next episode, I'll talk with Tia Newcomer, the, the new CEO of Caring Bridge. I've known Tia for a long time. She is an extraordinary individual and a great leader. 
If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.